for, for the idea of brokenness, maybe not quite so unusual, but in the context, but turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, the reason, uh, I know you'll know immediately the, probably the reason in my sort of contemplation of the idea of this brokenness um, why I went to Psalm 51 or as one of those texts, but uh, David says in that Psalm, verse 16, you do not lie, delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. And then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Uh, that's kind of what drew me to this text, but, um, but it was in the context of what I was sharing on Wednesday night in regards to brokenness for service in the kingdom. Um, and, and that's what really drew my attention to this text. Uh, we'll read the entire Psalm, but uh, verse 13, particularly after he uh, makes his petition in regards to his own restoration, uh, he says there, then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted. And so the title that I would put for tonight really was um, a prerequisite for, discipler, for the discipler. Uh, because he says here, then I will teach your ways. And also not only the disciple himself, but the, his effectiveness. Because then he goes on to say, and sinners will be turned back to you or sinners will be converted. And so I'm looking at this psalm in a very specific way tonight in terms of uh, how brokenness, uh, what's involved in the brokenness that produces an effective discipler. And it's really an interesting uh, way, to, way to look at this text. I know it's often used to describe repentance and it surely does that uh, in conviction. Uh, but I want you to think in those terms as we look through that tonight. It begins uh, with, this, with sort of its preface here for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan, Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so you, you'll recall the story very familiar that uh, Israel's in sort of a time of peace and uh, David, uh, perhaps for whatever reason, perhaps he was just idle for the moment. He spies Bathsheba bathing at a distance and, and the story sort of unfolds. He brings her to himself. Um, he, he takes her to himself, is intimate with her. And then to cover up his sin, whenever he learns that she's become pregnant, he has her uh, husband brought in from the battle. Uh, he's a loyal subject and he refuses uh, to, to go into his wife as his fellow soldiers are on the battlefronts or, or out in the field. And so David, uh, he won't go into her. So David ultimately sends him back and then he has the orders to put him out in the front of the troop. And when they go into battle, uh, they were to withdraw and essentially provide for the murder of Uriah. So David is a, has committed adultery here and he is a murderer. Uh, so that's the context of the story. And we remember that Nathan comes in and he tells him this story uh, about this uh, guy who had this one sheep that he, uh, one lamb that he kept dear. And a man had a visitor and he goes and has all this wealth, but he goes and takes that one man's little lamb uh, and just tells him that parable sort of. And naturally, David saw the injustice of that and he was enraged in regards to how this man could do that. And then, of course, Nathan, I remember old preacher said, Nathan pointed that long crooked finger at him and said, David, you're the man. And so that's, that's what really sets this psalm in motion. And so this was David's prayer. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, 
According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it, and you are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered upon your altar. So it's a really powerful psalm and a really, really a portrait of what true contrition and repentance or uh, just the prayer uh, of forgiveness looks like. In fact, it's a wonderful pattern to even think about when we find that we've been in sin and the Lord has called us out. Uh, it is really a wonderful psalm uh, to go through and think about uh, how that sin is relevant. So I was thinking about this in terms of the, of the discipler, which he says he will become in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted. So as I've said, uh, this, he's going to become a discipler and not only a discipler, but an effective one. Sinners will be converted. And so I'm asking, well, what does this brokenness have to do with being a discipler and not only a discipler, but an effective one? And how critical is brokenness in that and this contrition? So under these sort of headings uh, from, from the very first introduction there, that this is uh, the discipler must be those who have the word of God, to whom the word of God has come. And essentially that's what happened when Nathan came to David. He was basically coming saying, thus saith the Lord. So David has been sinning. His sin is multiplied. He's not only committed adultery, but now he's guilty of murder and, and all sorts of things. He's guilty of sins against Bathsheba, against, against Uriah, against both of their families, against their marriage, all sorts of things. So, so the word of the Lord through Nathan the prophet comes to him. And I think prerequisite to the discipler is the, is the coming of the word of the, of the Lord to you. And that means more, by the way, than just learning the word. It means the word of the Lord has come to bear in your life. In fact, that, that produces that brokenness when the Lord comes to bear in your life. Now, he may come to bear by reading the scriptures. So I all, by all means, read the scriptures and study them and learn them. 
But you're not going to be a discipler until the word comes to bear in your life. Otherwise, you're just a professor. Otherwise, you're maybe even a teacher, but you're not a discipler until the word comes to bear in your own life. That's exactly what happened in this sense in a negative way, but in other positive ways in David's life. But here, David has gone away from the Lord. He's in his sin. He's, he's covering it up. He's, his, his guilt, his conscience is seared with his sin. He's hardened his heart to a certain degree. And then the, Lord of the word of the Lord through Nathan the prophet comes to bear in his life. So prerequisite to being a discipler and an effective discipler is having the word of the Lord coming to bear in your own life. And that's critical. You have to have encountered God through his word. Second to that and similar to that, you see this in the preface here, but um, it's also prerequisite in those whose sin has been exposed, revealed to them. And this is more, not only to reveal to them that it's sin, David knew that was sin, but the revelation that it was that his sin was known to God. And so the revel, so the confrontation came, the word of God came to David, but not only did it come, but the word of God that came to him caused him to recognize that David, your sin is not hidden away. God knows your sin. He has sent the prophet with the word to come to bear in your life. He knows your sin. The discipler to me, the effective discipler has to realize as the word of God comes to bear, he has the revelation that his sin is not covered up. You may have, dis you may have covered it up from the kingdom. You may have covered it up from family and friends. But the discipler is the one to whom the word of God comes to expose to him that all of his sin is known to God. To me, that produces part of this brokenness as well. And it ought to forever produce humility in us when that happens. I think often about all the little sins that we, we dismiss as not so bad. Uh, does the word of God come to bear on us and expose those things that we have categorized as not so bad as a sin and an affront to a holy God? Does the word of God, the spirit of God bring the truth of God to bear and reveal to us that our sin is known to God? That's a frightening thing in, it, in and of itself. But the true disciple, the disciple who would disciple others and be effective is the one to whom the word of God has come and through that word, the one to whom that sin has been exposed, not only to him, but, but, that, but that it is known to God. And that's essentially what uh, the role of Nathan the prophet is. It's a thus saith the Lord, Nathan, you're the man. I just told you this story. It stirred in you indignation regarding the injustice of the story. And that very indignation, David, should be directed at you, but more than by yourself, but by God himself. David, you're the man. You're the one who is worthy of that indignation. And it's a holy indignation. The discipler must have had that sin exposed as having been known by God or known by God. In verses 3 and 4 as well, the, discipler, the, the disciples who are effective are those who have realized, real, realized the weightiness of their sin. Notice in those verses it says there, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me, and against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless 
when you judge. Primarily verse 3 here, for I know my transgressions. I think David, the word know here, <clears throat> I think in the context of what he says afterwards, is this idea that I am now... <clears throat> Through the word of God, having come to bear in my life and to expose to me the openness of my sin before God, I am, I am intimately now acquainted with my sin. That's a result of that. There is an, an intimacy involved or a, a real understanding of my sin. I, I, am, I know my transgressions. I can't push them away. The word of God has come to bear uh, they have been, I have been exposed. My sin is evident before God and I, I see it. I, I feel it. I, I know it. I think that's what he means here. And I say that because the ne very next verse there, he says, and my sin is ever before me. I can't, I can't get away from it. It's constantly there. The, the magnitude of my sin and the weightiness of my sin as it has been exposed by the word of God and has, has been exposed as having been known by God in, its, in the very depths of its secrecy, I cannot escape it now. I know my sin. I feel my connection with that sinfulness and, I, and it is ever before me. Do you remember those days when you came under that kind of conviction you couldn't escape that sin. Well, the discipler must have had that experience at some point if he's going to be a discipler in this context and if he's going to be effective. Now, that's not to say that God in his providence won't use someone who hasn't had this to, to reach a, a lost person. But I'm saying the discipler, if he takes his mission seriously as a disciple, this must be true in his life. My sin, he says, I know, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. On that last one, I wrote thinking about that. My sin is continually and incessantly and always in my conscience, pressing down on me constantly. That's the, that's the product or the, or the result of God bringing his word to bear in my life and exposing my sin as completely known by God. That's, that's what it produces in us. That's the effect of the word of God coming to bear. Every discipler, if he would be effective discipler, and if he would teach the ways of God, must have, must have been brought to the place of knowing and sensing the weightiness of his own sin. If sin's a light thing to you, you're not going to be a good discipler. And you're likely not going to be effective in that discipling as well because you've made light of sin. And in doing so, you've made light of the holiness of God himself. So the sinner, the discipler must have come to some realization of the reality of his sin, the weightiness of it, and the continual pressing down and oppressive nature of his own sin. If you would be a discipler, that must have been your experience. In verse 4, a discipler also who would be effective must also be one who has understood the God against whom they've sinned. It's really an interesting phrase here because when you think in terms of his sin, uh, some people hear this and it's almost as if they're, they're diminishing or he's diminishing in some way his sin against Bathsheba. I mean, he was the king. Even if she wanted to resist, he could have forced her. And he's the king, and how would you resist his orders? And so he sinned against people. 
But through this sin, he seems to understand that God, he says, against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is not, by, by the way, a minimization of that sin. In fact, I think it's a magnification of his sin against the people, Bathsheba and her father and her husband and their families. Bathsheba, if you think about it, was an image bearer and she was a wife. She was an image bearer and she was a wife. Uriah was an image bearer. He was a husband and he was also a loyal servant. By exploitation and murder, you, David, have taken to yourself for your own possession that which belonged to me and for my glory you have exploited for your own satisfaction. You have committed the greatest sin against Bathsheba and the greatest sin against Uriah. You have taken what belonged to me and existed for my glory and usurped it for your own pleasure, David. Yes, you have sinned tragically against them. But in taking what belonged to me, you have robbed me of my glory. And I think because he knew his sin and his transgression was ever before him and the word of God came to bear upon him in that way. He understood that yes, my sin against Bathsheba is horrible and her family and her father and her, and her mother and her husband and all of his companions, it's egregious and worthy of death, my sin against these pe people and human beings, but far greater because they belong to him is my sin against him. That's what I think David means here. And think about this for a minute. When you sin against someone and you, and you exploit or usurp God's ownership of them to make of them or use of them uh, or use them in ways that please you or gratify you, you are no less guilty of David's sin than had you murdered them. Because you have taken, you have create, you have committed the same root sin. You have taken to yourself what belongs to God and assumed in taking it that it was yours to use or to exploit in any way that you wanted to. And really, every sin I've ever committed against another person has the same root as David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, namely that I have usurped God. I have I have taken what belonged to God and used it for my own gratification. And in that sense, I think David could say, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. You're not going to be an effective discipler unless you understand that. You're going to be a therapeutic person. You're going to tell people how to ease their conscience by going and apologizing to those who they've done wrong. And you're going to make that sound like a, a selfish motivation here because if you don't go tell that person you're sorry, it's going to eat you alive and you're going to be the one who's hurt. I've heard that therapeutic application in regards to sin and, and whatever glimmer of truth there may be buried in there somewhere, the great atrocity of sin is that you have sinned against the holy God. That the disciple must know that he must know it or he can't be a discipler you can't teach people the ways of God if you don't know God and if you don't know that your sin is an affront to a holy God you're not going to be a discipler and neither will you be an effective discipler you'll be like Jesus 
said of the Pharisees, they travel land and sea to make one proselyte. And when they win him, they make him twice a son of hell as themselves. That's, the, that's what you'll be if you don't understand these things and realize the weightiness of our sin and understand the God against whom you've sinned. In verse 5 and 6, the discipler must be one who understood, understands the root, nature, and depth of their sinfulness. Notice what he says here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. That's striking to me after what he's just said. He's understood the weightiness of his sin and he's grasped now who it is ultimately that he has sinned against. His most egregious sin is against God himself. And he's thinking, to, he must be thinking to himself, my goodness, where does this rebellion come from? And he plums the depths of his own soul and he realizes here, I was conceived in iniquity. I was born. The root of that egregious sin is in my very nature. I didn't learn to be a sinner. I was born a sinner. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. From conception and secondly, he says, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, he says, you will make me to know wisdom. And so two things there. He recognizes the root of his sin, that I am a sinner by nature, this egregious affront against Bathsheba, her husband, all their families, and ultimately God himself has to come from somewhere. It, my sin problem is not, a, is not what I've done. It's the heart that produced such a thing. And so he's plumbed the depths now and he understands that I, there's something wrong with me in the innermost being. You desire truth there. I've discovered it's not there. There's something wrong with the innermost part of me that produces this. And it's so contrary because that is the place where you desire truth. Not just in activities, but in the inner man. The, the fruit, the tree in the inner man that bears the fruit unto God is truth. And what bore this fruit in David's life was sin. You can't be a discipler if you don't understand that. You can't be a discipler if you think changing someone's environment will improve their, uh, their life or their moral character. You can, you can press people and you can govern them. You can put someone behind bars and you can govern their behavior to a certain way. But why is there so much viciousness behind prison bars? It's because the nature of the men confined there will always find a way to produce sin, to produce wickedness because they are corrupt at their core, at their being. In the innermost area where God desires truth, they have nothing but deception and lies. And wickedness. You're not going to be an effective discipler if you don't go there. I remember we uh, did a course in Fruitland, Nuthetic Counseling, but that was the heart of what he was speaking to there. The counselor, the Christian counselor who does not, does not counsel on the basis of that reality <coughs> is not <coughs> a Christian counselor. He may be a counselor, but he's not a Christian counselor because that is central to our understanding of biblical truth and of the Christian faith in general, that we are by nature and in the innermost part of our being sinful. 
The discipler must know that. And I think more than that, he must have been, he must have come to that realization himself by the power and spirit of God, by the word of God coming to bear in his own life and exposing his sin, not only the sins outwardly, but the very root of those sins. The discipler must have had that divine work of God bringing him to the understanding, not the theological concept of it, but the experience of it. Paul said, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. That's a, that sounds to me not only like a revelation from God, but a personal experience of that deep innermost man in his fallenness. The discipler must know that. In verse 8 and 17 as well, I've already quoted those, but the discipler who would be effective must have known brokenness. I say in verse 8, he says there, make me to hear the joy of gladness. Let the bones which you have broken, you broken them, let them rejoice, he says in his petition. And then we know from verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My point here is that a discipler, an effective discipler must know something of the brokenness. And trust me, if, if you've had the experiences of this up until now, you know that. I don't know that just, just in my conversion, I, I've learned and known this sense of brokenness throughout my Christian life. In fact, consecutively so and increasingly so. And sometimes it seems as though the, the nearer I get to Christ, the more broken I feel in some ways. Because the more light that shines, the more darkness I see that remains. And, and so the discipler who would disciple others and be, and be effective in discipling others must know something of that brokenness. And maybe you've achieved a place in your life to where you don't feel that as much, but at least remember the brokenness that brought you, brought you along to see Christ. Remember the God-ordained circumstances that produce this despair in your life where you abandon self-sufficiency and dependence on, upon yourself and turn to Christ and trusted in Him fully. Brokenness must be a part. That experience of that brokenness must be a part of the discipler if he's to be effective and if he's to share with folks the ways of God. Notice his brokenness in verse 2 and 7, I think is partly resulting from the defilement of sin. And he says in verse 14, the blood guiltiness. He uses the word often there, wash and clean and restore. And the defilement of his sin, he, he sees that and he realizes that. And that's the, that's, the, that's the brokenness manifested. I see my own defilement and there's no rescue here from me and I'm crushed by the weightiness of my sin and there's no escape for me in and of myself because if I could reach down and offer up some sacrifice, if there was something like that available, I would do it, he says later on. But he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, not anything I can offer. Because what could you offer if the innermost being is deceived and there is wickedness down to the very core of our being? What could you possibly offer? What could you offer? Even the most, clean, most pure bull and goat or lamb would be offered up by the most defiled of persons. And how could that possibly be acceptable to God? 
That'll produce brokenness. Let me tell you, you'll be broke when you find out, when you figure out that you have nothing to offer up to God. To make you acceptable to God in justification. And that, that's when you'll begin to sense this brokenness. When you'll realize that you have no, you have no way of repaying him or, or bargaining with him. You have no, you have no way of, of, of cajoling him into some place to where he will accept you. You have nothing at all but the defilement of your sin and blood guiltiness. And like David, you will have known that brokenness. I think the disciple must have known that. In fact, I would go so far as to say he must never get far away from the sense of it for him to be an effective discipler. The discipler must also be the one who has cried out for grace and mercy. I just raced through this passage when I was studying real quickly, and here's some phrases. Wash me, cleanse me, make me know wisdom, purify me, make me hear joy and gladness again, restore and deliver me. All those are appeals for grace. It's not his sacrifice. He begins this whole passage, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness or your mercy, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Not one whit there is making any effort whatsoever to justify his sin. He is caught dead to rights, exposed before a holy God, as defiled down to the very core of his being. There's no wonder his mind doesn't turn to what can I offer up. If, I, if there was something that was acceptable, I would offer it. But it's, you don't delight in that. And what am I left with? Grace. Mercy. And so he cries out and he pleads for that very thing. The discipler must have been one who has cried out in the same way for grace and mercy. Because if you're not, you're going to disciple someone to think that they can find acceptance with God through doing things. Go to church more regular. God will accept you. Do some charitable work. God will accept you. Say your prayers. God will accept you. Do your devotions in the morning. God will accept you. Do all this stuff and God will accept you. Well, if you've never been broken and if you've never experienced this brokenness and this absolute, utter, hopeless despair, were it not for the grace of God, you're not going to disciple people towards calling upon that same grace. And to me, if you're discipling someone and moving them away from grace and mercy, you are discipling one by diminishing the, the glory and the merit of Christ and his suffering. That is a tragic thing to be doing, and a discipler cannot be guilty of that. You're not going to be a discipler if, you're not, if you haven't yourself cried out for mercy and realized in that moment that you have nothing to offer God. He has only grace and mercy to offer us when we're in that place. Purify me, he says, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Notice all these are, are his petitions to God. You do this. You, well, I'll, I'll say it this way. You purify me. You wash me. You make me to hear joy and gladness. 
You let the bones you've broken rejoice. You hide not hide your face from my sins. You blot out all my iniquities. You create in me a clean heart. You renew a steadfast spirit in me. You don't cast me away from your presence. You do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You restore me to the joy of your salvation. You sustain me with a willing spirit. All those are petitions for God to do it. Not one time in there does he say, I'll do some of this. In fact, he makes his response dependent upon God doing it. You, you make the bones rejoice. In fact, his whole, his, whole, his whole resolve to be a discipler and to be an effective one is rooted in God doing what he's asking God to do by his grace. Not of anything he's doing. So the discipler who would teach others the ways of God and see sinners converted or turn from their ways is the one who has cried out himself for mercy and for grace. Verse 16 and 17, the discipler who would be effective is the one who has rejected his own works as a means of his justification or his restoration with God. That's why I think he means there. In verse 16, oh, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. It's interesting because in verse 19, he seems to, be, he seems to indicate that there is a condition in which those things are delight to God. There he says, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered upon your altar. If you read that, what's, what's the difference between those two passages? The word favor, which I take to mean grace. In other words, without grace, without an appeal for grace and a recognition it's the mercy of God, there is no acceptable sacrifice to God. But oh, if grace is received, then the sacrifices that come up are thanksgiving and sacrifices of praise. Yes, these are acceptable to God because they point to grace, which is his means of restoring you. The disciple must know that. Yes, we offer up the sacrifice of praise as New Testament Christians. We offer up sacrifice. But what makes those acceptable to God is they rise up out of the heart that has received grace and mercy as its only means of acceptability before God. It is the fruit of our hearts giving praise for His grace. Ephesians 1, over and over to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's different. That's different. Offer up your sacrifices, lay down your life, sell your home, move to, move to far places in the world and, and teach others and be a discipler. If it is not done as a matter of grace, it is not pleasing to God. But oh, if you give up this whole world for, for the proclamation of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, this is acceptable to God. I think that's what he's drawing the contrast between here. The discipler who would be effective, must have, must have altogether rejected works as a means or even contributing to his own justification, his own works. And I've already touched on this, but in verse 18 through 19, I think the discipler are those whose works flow from grace, which I've just covered that. Disciples, uh, those who are disciples, they are obedient. They, they do many things. They are involved. They are sacrificial. They are ministering in all sorts of ways. But all of that is flowing from this grace of God. 
It is flowing out of a heart rejoicing in the mercy that it has received. It is flowing from the heart who has seen the cross and seen Christ and understood the purpose and the exchange and the purchase there. And they are rejoicing and devoting their lives in service to God because of what they see there. They're not trying to find acceptability with God and, 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 and justification with God through all of those things. The true disciples' works flows from grace. So when all these things are true, we return to verse 13. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. The implication for me is without this, you won't or you can't or maybe you wouldn't be qualified. Because unless you've known the ways of God, it would be difficult to know, to teach the ways of God. But he says all this psalm, and then at the end of that part, portion there, he says, then I will do this. Sometimes I think we get things in reverse, especially in the church, especially now among the Southern Baptists. There's a push and a press towards discipling ministries, and that's a wonderful thing. But I'm wondering now, what about the disciplers? What about the people doing the discipling? Have they gone through this? Have they experienced this? Have they come to know these things? Have they been equipped as disciplers? That might be a bigger problem in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have people who do not know these things in regards to God and do not know the ways of God who are taking upon themselves the role of disciplers and they're, they're propagating themselves. And we're feeling American Christendom with people who are discipling others who have never come to know the Lord themselves, who do not know the ways of the Lord. David certainly did, and he understood that only in knowing those can, and only in this restoration by grace can I become a teacher of the ways of God. And he understood, it, understood something even more, that only through this restoration of grace in my life and this brokenness that it produces, only then can sinners, will sinners be converted, be turned back to you. And that's what that spoke to me that all, all this week and especially early this morning. My role as a discipler and my effectiveness are somehow linked to this experience that he's saying. At least David is linking those together. And look what a discipler David, David was having experienced this. And there's so much truth here that is recognized in the word of God coming to bear upon David in his sin through, the, through Nathan the prophet. And he begins to confess true and deep realities in regards to the nature of sin and the nature of a holy God. And he grasps these things and then he understands, Lord, if you grant grace and restore to me these things, my joy and the joy of my salvation... Lord, if you provide for these things by this grace, oh, then I can tell people about your ways because I've experienced them. I didn't learn them in a book. I learned them in life and by your grace. And I think that has a way of being more effective in turning sinners back to God. Those who are gone away, whether they be believers who are straying or those who are outside of God altogether. And so that ties into what I was sharing on Wednesday night. I think there is a brokenness that makes us fit and useful for the kingdom. 
Because I don't think we can be disciples and tell people and teach people the ways of God until God, by his providence, brings those circumstances into our life that crush out of us all remaining self-sufficiency. And we finally come to the place that we are relying wholly upon him and his grace. And then we can tell people about his ways. And then God, I think, will honor that because there is no self-exaltation involved. There is only the glory of God involved. And he will confirm that by turning sinners back to himself through, the, through those who are teaching the ways of God. That's, that's huge for me. That's huge for me. It don't make brokenness any easier. And it don't make the next circumstance and the one to follow that and the one to follow that any easier. But it does, it does encourage me in that God has a purpose for that. Let me ask you, Christian, is there anything you would want more than to be able with divine Holy Spirit power speak the truths of God into lives and see for the glory of God those lives completely changed? Is there anything you would want more? Well, there's a price to it. And I think that's brokenness. I think that's smashing out of us all self-sufficiency and driving us towards holy, depending upon God, his word, and the Holy Spirit to bring about those things and just becoming a willing, joyful vessel for him to describe his ways to others. So in the end, he would be the discipler and we would be mere vessels. I think there would be great joy in that experience. And I hope we can all experience that more and more. But sometimes, all, always, the price of that is the brokenness that the Lord brings into our lives to press out of us that self-sufficiency. Stand with me tonight.